Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to welcome Jay Bully McCall, the author of The Penalty of Success, and she will be interviewed by Margaret Russell, Professor of Law at the University of Santa Clara. Clara. Tonight's event uh, will be a moderated discussion, and we'll have questions as we usually do um, after 40, 45 minutes or so. So welcome our speaker. Thank you very much for coming. Good evening. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I was glad to hear from George that there is a, a tour, um, a trip uh, going through some of the sites and, and events in history that we're going to be talking about. I first met, uh, had the honor of meeting and hearing uh, Josephine Bowling McCall the year before last in uh, a conference at Tuskegee, in which we were both participating, that was called Resurrecting Our Stories. And it was about, um, it was one of three conferences we had in Alabama over the course of a year, really reaching out to the local community to hear their stories of the horrible racial violence that their family had suffered over several generations, specifically focusing on the Alabama period of time. And uh, so that after hearing Josephine Bowling McCall, I just thought, well, this is just a wonderful person whose um, work I very much want to follow. I knew that she had written a book about her experience um, learning about her father's death. So... Um, Luckily, uh, Josephine Bowling McCall has come to the Bay Area, uh, and it is just about a year since the opening of a place that I very much recommend you go, which is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Um, that was started by Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, this is a really remarkable place over six to eight acres um, on a hilltop in Montgomery, Alabama. And it has, as a tribute, really, to all of the people um, who really have largely been unrecognized, um, uh, victims of lynching and racial terror between 1877 and 1950. There, it is sculpture as well as um, uh, other forms of artwork. And uh, which brings us to Elmore Bowling and Josephine Bowling McCall, um, are huge, I think they're probably 800-pound pillars that uh, are inscribed with every county where a lynching has been documented and the name of the person. Um, and so that's where I saw Elmore Bowling's name, and it is where you can see his name. But for now, um, we can hear his story. And uh, I want you to please join me in welcoming Josephine Bowling McCall and hearing about her father. Thank you. So that was a little bit longer of, of an opening, but it explains why your, um, your research and your reflections about your father's life are so remarkable. So I'm hoping that you can start by just telling us um, a little bit about him and his life. My father, Elmo Bowling, was born in 1908 in Lowndes County, Alabama. And he was sent to Montgomery at the age of 13 to begin his formal education. And once he got to Montgomery, which is about 30 miles from Lowndes County, he found out that all of the students in the class were a lot smaller than he. So consequently, he dropped out of school. 
he never learned to read or write. And then there's another thing that's significant about my father is that he never used the pronoun I. He always spoke of himself as me. Me will do this, me will do that. When he dropped out of school, he began working in Montgomery. And later on, his father in Lowndes County found out that he was not in school. So he said, if you want to work, you can come down here and pick cotton. So he made him return to Lowndes County. But in the meantime, my father had learned some of the things that the people in Montgomery needed. So he started meeting their needs through transportation. He started out with a mule and a wagon. And by the time he reached the age of 39, he had progressed from the mule and a wagon to a T-model Ford that he converted into a truck. And then he eventually had three tractor-trailer trucks. So... um the title of your book, so aptly titled The Penalty for Success, um, why did you decide to call it that? Why was, what was his penalty for success? My father acquired quite a bit in those 39 years, and that success, his prosperity, is the reason he was killed. And how old were you when he was killed? And can you share with us some of the the circumstances of that. I was five years old, and my father also had a store on Highway 80. And Highway 80 is the U.S. highway between Selma and Montgomery that has been designated a National Historic Trail. So my father's store was on a very popular highway, and we were at the store, and my father was killed approximately 200 yards from that store. So we were there in the store, and we heard the shots. And, of course, we went down there to the site. But I would like to make everyone know where Lyons County is. There's one person in here who's from Montgomery. I'm sure he knows. But I would like to tell you that I can make everybody else in here know where Lyons County is. Have you ever heard of the march from Selma to Montgomery? Lyons County is 22 of those historic miles between Selma and Montgomery. And if you go on Highway 80, you cannot get to Selma from Montgomery without going through those 22 miles. You've heard of Viola Louisa, the white mother who left her five children and went down south to help. She was murdered in Lowndes County. Jonathan Daniels, the Episcopalian uh, priest, who went there at the beckoning of Martin Luther King when he asked all clergy members to come and assist him, Jonathan Daniels was murdered in Lowndes County. So Lowndes County was known as Bloody Lowndes. In fact, that was his title because even though they had the law, it was lawless. Whites killed whites and nothing was done about it. And whites, of course, killed blacks and nothing was done about it. And there has been a book written by Dr. Hassan Jeffries, and its title is Bloody Lounge. So it preceded my book. In fact, Dr. Jeffries did it as a part of his dissertation, and my father was included in his dissertation. It's, it's remarkable, um, I think, that at first glance, um, I think a lot of us think, well, there was a period of lynching, which was 1800s, early 1900s. And then there was, you know, we don't know, right? And then there was the civil rights movement. But it actually was a pretty continuous, continuously violent period. And the violence took different forms such that um, 
if people think that lynching was just, uh, it's a rope, it's a public event, um, it actually took many forms and, and it is defined in many ways. And the 4,400 African-Americans, I think, whose lynchings are documented by the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, were shot, drowned, um, uh, knifed, you know, victims of various kinds of violence that really acted as a kind of racial terror. It was a reign of terror. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about your story of your father's success is that the success was a threat, um, his very success in the community. So can you say more about about that and what yes. you discovered in your research? Yes, and just to um, emphasize what you're saying, there's nothing in the definition of lynching about the type of murder. The type of murder is not part of the definition. The definition is that more than one person committed the crime, a mob, and that the person has no due process. So that's very mm-hmm. important to, to recognize because my father was actually shot six times with a pistol and once in the back with a shotgun. So that lets you know right away that it had to be more than one person who committed the crime. But at the time of my father's murder, lynchings were becoming um, where you, they didn't want anyone to know that you, they were lynching people. So they were becoming unpopular because you probably read that Lynchings were a public spectacular that they put them on postcards that was announced in the newspapers. Well, some lynching law legislation was being proposed, and in some of the uh, proposals were that if a sheriff let someone take a person from prison, then the sheriff would be fined. The county would be fined. So consequently, they wanted to stop having lynchings identified as such. So... Lowndes County made an effort to make sure that my father's murder did not appear to be a lynching. They arrested one man. And see, that was an anomaly. They arrested a white man for the murder of a black man. And in the newspaper article that came out at that time, uh, this is December the 7th, 1947. My father was actually murdered December the 4th. And I did not know anything about this article until I was almost 30, about 35 years of age. And a lady came to my mom's house and brought the article, clipped, and uh, after I read it, it gave me a whole lot of information. It mentioned that a white man was arrested for his murder, and that was an anomaly, because you didn't arrest whites for killing blacks. It also mentioned that the grand jury was going to meet in March of the next year. And this is where I learned that he was actually shot the six times with a pistol and once in the back with a shotgun. The, the article was very significant also in that it said that the dead Negro, Bowling, according to conversation last night in the surrounding neighborhood, appears to have had an excellent reputation, was married and had seven children. And over the years, he had built for himself a small trucking business valued at $5,000. So at that time, $5,000 was a lot of money. But in addition to that, my uncle said that he had 40000 in the bank. So the things that also um, attracted my attention was that this was on the front page. 
And back then, we had a Negro news section of the newspaper. So we had maybe one page or two pages, depending on how much news they could find about the Negro. So the person who was writing the Negro news at that time made the statement that the only time a Negro got on the front page of the newspaper was that he had stolen something or he was famous or he had stolen a can of sardines. (laughs) So this newspaper article was very significant in my beginning my research. And it also gave a reason for the murder. The the person who was arrested said that my father insulted his wife over the telephone. That was in that article. That's all in this article. Okay. So um, you said that you were 35 and uh, you were very sadly five when you saw your father deceased. Right. Um, what was your life like and your family's life between your father's murder and the time when you decided to research this book. What was the effect of this? Well, we went from prosperity to poverty almost overnight. Um, My mother, of course, uh, knew how to pick cotton, and she knew how to run a store. But when she got to Montgomery, after we fled from Lowndes County to Montgomery, there were no black faces in storefronts. So she actually uh, made a living uh, working on the dry cleaners. The brothers who were in school in Montgomery, two of them were, uh, stopped school and took jobs. Mm -hmm. So consequently, I'm child number seven, and I am the only college graduate. And was there, I think for a lot of us, there's a kind of aha moment moving into adulthood when we realize both that we're separate from the family we came from, yet uh, very perceptive of it and you're very curious about it and is that when you decided that you wanted to look into your father's death more closely? Actually when Alex Haley came out with his roots uh, and everybody was studying their genealogy that was when I decided that I would go to the library and find that article and start doing research. So one of the things I did was uh, try to get information from the Library of Congress, and that's when I got this um, document here, which uh, showed me that a uh, Montgomery member of the NAACP had clipped this article, and that's what's here, and sent it to Thurgood Marshall. At the top of this article, someone had written, at the top of this letter, someone had written, possible lynching, Lowndes County. But this letter was very, very significant in the way that I began my research. May I read a Yes, okay. and remind me, what is the date on that again? Uh, December the 7th. The same, day that the, the same okay. date that the article appeared in the newspaper is the same date that he wrote the letter to Thurgood Marshall. And he says in here, My dear sir, I feel compelled to send you this clipping. This man had six pistol bullets in his front and a shotgun charge in his back. This could be a lynching. I have not found out if the six bullets were of the same caliber. However, it would take a monster to shoot a man six times. It is unlikely that the shotgun charge was fired by the same person. A new type of lynching is developing. The mob get one or two men to do the work. 
the insult to his wife over the telephone is likely to be untrue. This clipping is from the Montgomery Advertiser, December the 7th. And then he concludes by saying, when trouble comes, our branch never got any money. So this started me looking at my father's death in a different manner because of what was uh, transcribed up here, possible lynching, and because of what he says about the mob gets one or two persons to commit the crime. Previously, um, most of the lynching data came from Tuskegee University, and Tuskegee was using the definition three or more people constituted a mob. So I went to Tuskegee to see if my father's murder were recorded there. And when I got there, there was one person recorded as a lynching, but it was not my father. But I continued to research because I wanted to know more about that. And some friends of mine moved to Tuscaloosa, where the University of Alabama is. And they found this article for me in the Chicago Defender. The Chicago Defender was one of the major premier uh, newspapers at that time because what it did kept the people in the South aware, the people in the North who had migrated, I'm sorry, it kept them aware of what was going on in the South. So this article appeared in the Chicago Defender on December the 20th, and it too had interesting information. Enraged white, enraged whites, jealous over the business success of a Negro, are believed to be the lynchers of Elmo Bowling. It had his na- age in here as 30, but he was actually 39, so somebody made a typo there. Who was found last week riddled with shotgun and pistol shots. Operator of a small trucking business valued at $5,000, Bolin had a reputable name in this community. He was married and the father of seven children. And I just told you I'm number seven. Uh, it is believed here that more than one person figured in the murder. But Clark Lucky, white employee of the Producers Commission Company, is the only person held. He was released on $2,500 bond. Lucky vaguely inferred that Bolin insulted his wife in a telephone conversation, those who know say Bolin has been has long been a marked man since he was rated by whites here as too successful to be a Negro. So this, too, mentions the word lynchers. So I continue to research, and that's how I found out that the definition has never included the type of murder. It's always been the number of people and that there's no due process. So um, tell us more about what you found when you started researching the the circumstances of uh, the people who shot him, the people who were <laughs> jealous of him, the whole community. Uh, different circumstances started happening where my father uh, had a very, very wonderful reputation in terms of dependability, uh, punctuality. So whites began uh, preferring my father's business over other whites. So that started some of the jealousy. And then uh, my father had gone to a place to buy gasoline, 
And the store owner told him he'd better not put his feet on the ground. He said, well, this truck belongs to a white man named Bob Dixon. He said, you better not put your feet on the ground. So my father drove off and told the person in the truck with him, me will sell gas to myself. He says, what are you talking about, Elmo? Me will sell gas to myself. So what my father did was put gas tanks at his store. So therefore, uh, once again, enterprising. He's right, right. And there was a store which was less than a half a mile down the road that was owned by a doctor. And he flagged him down one day and said, Elmo, you're trying to take all the business. And of course, my father told him, no, sir, it's enough business for both of us. But those kinds of circumstances started uh, creating animosity between my father and the whites. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to mention a, a moment that the the center that we've both done some work with, um, the Center for Civil Rights and Restorative Justice, um, Margaret Burnham's group out of Northeastern University, actually has a, a clinic in which they train law students to be investigators. And um, and so that has really become a repository of a lot of the, the so-called cold cases of the Jim Crow era in which there are, you know, at first glance, as you say, there's a story, a surface story about how someone died. And then these students or other investigators, they start researching it. They look in newspapers. They contact, if possible, um, descendants, relatives. And um, it is amazing how many of these accidents or love triangles or whatever, however they're described, um, they really are racialized terror lynchings. It drove thousands of people um, to the migration from the South, right, yes. fleeing that. Yes. And I think what um, is so important about your book is that it, it's his story, obviously, but it's also, it's your story and it's America's story about what it means actually to lift the lid. Um, so I really do appreciate that so much about your work. And um, and I'm wondering, we were talking beforehand about, well, is there any question I shouldn't ask you, you know? Um, you know, I, I do some work in the area of civil rights and restorative justice. And so the current debate has a lot of questions about, well, can this country heal from its wounds? And if so, what steps might be taken? And can you describe how you sort of came to terms in your own life in some kind of, I, I would hope, um, healing way through this story and, and what you think we should learn from it? One of the things that uh, I will say, at the age of five, I was shielded quite a bit, so I did not know a lot. But the other thing is that my father's reputation followed him up until I became an adult. Uh, everywhere I went, you're Elmo Bowling's daughter. And so uh, I was strengthened by his legacy. Um, but now when you think in terms of what's going on, there are so many people who have never heard of lynching, and then they, uh, so they say. But the only way that any healing is going to take place is we're going to have to talk about it and admit that it has occurred and then think of ways what can we do to try to prevent it from happening uh, anymore? And that's only going to uh, come about with discussion and actions. 
You just can't listen and do nothing. Each person must ask his or her himself, her or himself, what is it that I can do? Um, so I wanted to turn um, a bit more to, I guess, the context of the era. You had mentioned that Rosa Parks had actually done um, when when working as a, a researcher for the NAACP that Rosa Parks had looked into. Um, the circumstances of your father's death. And and I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Thurgood. It was, it's actually excellent, with Chadwick Boseman playing Thurgood Marshall during a period of his career when he was a lawyer investigating cases for the NAACP. And they, they were a lot of, you know, mysterious circumstances, deaths. Um, so Thurgood Marshall was asked to investigate this. Rosa Parks did look into it. What did you learn about what she wrote, and, and when did you learn it? Okay. Actually, the letter that I showed you never reached Thurgood Marshall. And huh. I, I was able to prove that because the letter came, to, came, the letter came to me with the actual clippings that I just told you about and a letter that went to the Library of Congress in 1939 was clipped to the letter that where my father was killed in 1947. So Thurgood Marshall never received that. Now, Rosa Parks was the secretary of the Montgomery NAACP. So Rosa Parks went all around researching cases, and they didn't just happen to be lynching cases, whatever cases turned out to be. But she purported a different scenario in the case of my father. Uh, She actually wrote that uh, my father was involved in a triangular relationship, and she thought that the black woman who was in the truck with my father when he was killed was actually dating the white man that killed him. So she thought it was a triangular relationship. And that happened quite a bit back then. If a white man wanted a black woman, even if she were married, the man had to leave town or the white man would kill her. So Rosa Parks actually thought mm-hmm. that that was a triangular relationship. And in her book, Rosa Parks, My Story, uh, she says that the man who was arrested pleaded self-defense. And my proof of that, that it was not correct, was that he was not indicted. So without an indictment, mm-hmm. there is no plea. And then I interviewed uh, this, the relatives of the white man who killed my father. And she said, uh, Lucky Clark did not like black women. Mm. The other, other part of my investigation include, uh, include the NAACP listing my father's case as among 1947's most publicized cases. There are about five cases on there, mm. and if you see the one with the asterisk, that's my father's case, and it was one of the most publicized cases in 1947. And two months after that, President Truman actually requested legislation to prevent lynching. And, of course, you know, the, uh, the House of Representatives actually passed one, but the Senate never Past one, they issued an apology about four or five years ago, mm-hmm. but they have never done a resolution op- opposing lynching. 
They so they issued an apology for not having done done uh, anything. Yes. Say. Okay. Yes. Um. So so by by coincidence, um, someone else I've been doing work with in Virginia about a month ago, um, after ten years of work in Virginia, um, managed to write and actually get through the Virginia legislature unanimously um, a resolution of apology for lynching in the state of Virginia. You may have heard of it, but many of you may not have because it happened to have happened. Uh, it was passed the same week that Governor Northam uh, was in the news for the, so so I was talking to this you know incredibly you know dedicated activist and she said this is not getting any traction I've worked for ten years for this apology and it's unanimously signed and the governor wants to sign it and I said well of course the governor wants to sign it because <laughs> he's just in the news and and it just you know it was in some newspapers but it just didn't get a lot of coverage um, it's very significant to her as a lifelong Southerner. Um, a white woman activist who worked for 10 years to do this. And in talking to her, I, you know, we had a lot of conversations about, well, what does an apology mean? Um, Is it meaningful? What else can be done? There's a big debate now about reparations and, and how do we get over um, really the, the sins of the past and the violence of the past. So I guess, you know, what I'm thinking when we talk about resolutions of apology and et cetera, it's, what do you think is even close to sufficient to move us forward? What was very significant in our case was the loss of possible education. My two brothers who were in school in Montgomery dropped out of school to help support the family. Uh, the biggest reparation that I see that would help the average black person would be to afford free education mm-hmm. to them who cannot afford it. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Well, I would like to move to some more conversation and any questions that you might have right now. And I have a statement and a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, my statement is that I'm proud to be a black man. Uh, two sons that I've raised who are successful, positive uh, frame of mind. There's a granddaughter coming along. And I feel that at times that uh, we have to carry the heavy load. Uh to be the consciousness uh, of, the, of this country. And I would not want to be born as anything as a black man to push our cause forward. And I want to say our, our cause, I mean, everyone's cause in this country. So I'm proud to be a black man. Now, my question is, what happened to that $40,000? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. And my answer is, you're going to have to read my book. Oh. <laughs> I mean, because that, that, that $40,000 should have been something to push your family uh, and your father's legacy forward. So uh, 
what was going on behind the scenes with with that with that money and, and the business and the, <clears throat> I, I the, was just looking know, at that page. I don't have a. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well. She clearly learned, and I could tell you, but I can't tell you. She clearly learned the rules yes. of business, which is when, when right. re- withhold information. <laughs> Your father taught you well. Um, my father's family were sharecroppers in the South, and I, I was raised in Chicago, but I did live for two years in the South when I was a child, and the signs, you know, whites only and coloreds only, et cetera. So I remember the, that culture very well. But my father's stories about, obviously, you know, the whole culture of sharecropping was meant to keep mm-hmm. everybody down. And he even did say that there was so much jealousy among people for anybody who could accumulate anything, you know, because everyone was so poor, you know, that, that if somebody had something, it would... It, it was like noteworthy. So your father obviously was an amazing man in that respect. And um, you look amazing for your age. Thank you. <laughs> or for any Just age. Just wanted to say well, I love your can grades. Can I also add, you were telling me a little bit about your mother's role in the success of the business and the family. Could you just fill us in on that? Um, my mother was a wonderful cook. And my father... Um, um, let's say, um, benefited from that because he would transport parishioners to different churches. In Lowndes County, churches met on first and third Sundays, and other churches met on second and fourth. So he would make sure parishioners got to these churches every Sunday. And when they got hungry, my mom had this great big trunk full of food, and uh, they would buy plates from my mother and they made a hundred dollars a Sunday off ice cream, and the reason being, uh, there was no refrigeration at that time, so ice cream was a, a delicacy that you couldn't keep otherwise. So whenever they went around Elmo Bowling, they were looking for ice cream. <laughs> but I would like to delve into what okay. she mentioned about uh, sharecropping a little bit. In the 1883 Constitution of Alabama. And then it was rewritten in 1901, and i just like to tell you that that Constitution is still in effect. Peonage was legal, and P-E-O-N-A-G-E. And what that was, if you lived on a plantation and you were sharecropping and the person said you had to make $50 in order to clear yourself, you only made 30 you couldn't move off his property. If you moved off the property, the sheriff could come get mm-hmm. you and put you back on, or they could simply kill you. So Peonich is on the books in Lowndes County. Yeah, it was bondage. Yes. Form yes. Really. yes, that's exactly right. And that's what W.E.B. Du Bois found when he went into Lowndes County to investigate. Mm. He said the, the uh, county is still combed with slavery. Thank you. So I was born and raised in Mississippi, and I'm a graduate of the University of Alabama. Oh. So with um, I was I just graduated college when Edgar Ray Killen was found guilty of murdering the three civil rights workers in Mississippi. And I remember as a child when Byron Della Beckwith was found guilty of murdering um, Megar Evers, Mr. Mm-hmm. Megar Evers. So would you be opposed if the man is still alive who um, lynched your father? Would you be opposed to him being brought to trial today? Absolutely not. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
But the only thing about that, and I want all of us to take this in consideration, I don't know anyone who's actually uh, suffered, who's been jailed uh, in, in that regards. If it has been, it's only been one or two mm-hmm. people. I just want to say thank you for your father, and thank you for telling his story, because this is an amazing story. I, too, grew up in the South, in Alabama, um, and I went to Tuskegee, and um I was born in the 1950s when these things were very common, and there's not a day that I don't think about them, even though I lived in San Francisco since the early 70s. Mm. But just to have you come and tell us your story is just really heartwarming, and I thank you so much. But then I'd like to ask you, um, tell us something about your life after more than writing the book. Okay. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about growing up in Montgomery, and the things that uh, were hurtful, I was—I also was there when we were having the bus protest. We couldn't say bus boycott because that was illegal. So it's called a bus protest. Mm. And I do remember having to stand at the back of the bus uh, when seats were available in the front. Uh, and there are two situations that stand out most in my mind. And one of them was when the public library was integrated. They removed the chairs to keep us from sitting down next to whites. And the next thing, there was a large park, Oak Park. When they integrated Oak Park, they cemented the pool, the swimming pool. So uh, those things that I stand out of my mind, but um, as I mentioned before, my mother uh, actually funded my education by working in a dry cleaners, and um, I have two degrees from Alabama State, and then I went to Auburn University and got double A certification in school psychology, and I retired as uh, director of special education in Phoenix City, Alabama. Could you talk a little bit about the modern-day manifestation of racial violence, racist violence? And what I'm thinking about right here in San Francisco, uh, earlier this month, the city settled with the family of Mario Woods, who was surrounded by SFPD officers and shot 29 times with his back up against a wall. And the city... uh, attorney spokesperson said that what SFPD had done was within the law and within their training. The family of Alex Nieto, similarly killed by SFPD, just got a memorial created for him on Bernal Hill, where he was shot by SFPD. And just yesterday was the third year anniversary of um, Luis Gongora Pat, who was also killed by SFPD as he lay on a sidewalk, an an unhoused Mayan immigrant. I'll tell you that I'm trembling inside just listening to what you're saying. But more importantly, I'll tell you that it's not just going on in San Francisco. I stopped trying to keep up with them, this Ferguson, and you just name it. It's, It's going on in so many places. But then I'll tell you, Importantly, is that you and I have a role in prevention, and that is until we start speaking out against it, there's nothing going to be done about it. 
because that's what happened in Lowndes County. No one said anything. There was no justice. Anybody could kill anybody. And as long as there's no penalty, no consequence, it's going to continue to happen. Ava DuVernay's quote is one that I remember, and it is this. Pressure from people cause change. And unless the people start speaking out against this and making things happen, it's going to remain as it is. So it's up to us, everybody. Absolutely. Everyone in here, think of what you can do to make a change. And I have to stop right now and say my hostess, Tracy Houghton, and her husband, Brian. Thank you. They provided me with this tour, and I'm speaking to many groups here in San Francisco and the Bay Area, and lots, lot of people who uh, have heard me have pledged to do something about it. It's, it's an awareness that I've never heard before. So this is what they thought that they could do. So you decide what mm-hmm. you can do. Thanks, Tracy and Brian. Thank you. I live in Oakland, not one of the high points of the Bay Area for African Americans. And women in my neighborhood stand on a street corner every Friday afternoon with signs that say Black Lives Matter. On on another corner on Saturday at noon, another group stands with similar messages. In front of the Grand Lake Theater, people stand on Tuesday afternoon with those messages. And we think that those are the small things that make us uh, feel like we're doing something. And we, and, but people honk as they go by, they wave, they cheer, they yell nasty things. It's very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Professor Russell, maybe I'll go back to you for a second on the background, the sort of historical background, because I think, as you just said, uh, it's what every individual does. But I think it really helps to understand how things morphed, just as you said, with sharecropping to to peonage. It's just another form of slavery. That mass incarceration is just another form of slavery. Um, you know, and, and why why do we do this over and over? You you set up certain incentives, and then people push it in a different direction. Um, and I, I was wondering if you you know, and a lot of people don't know the story of why Reconstruction failed. Uh, you know, in the Tilden Hayes election, and 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 how that people uh, abused the Electoral College in order to put an end to it. And I, I think that that's another interesting thing mm-hmm. to find out that there was people were willing to go against the law in order to try to allow this to come back in. And ironically, it was the Republicans, who, under Lincoln's Republicans, who did it only 11 years after the Civil War, right? So if you want to talk a little bit about that background, that would be really great for the, the historical context in which this problem continues to go on. And it, it, it lightens up a little bit, but it's not lightening up quickly at, at all. No, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Um, uh, well, thank you. I mean, I do, I do want to um, get back to a question I have for you, but... but I think people um, here, you know, are pretty 
perhaps well-read, well-informed. There are lots more resources now. Um, <clears throat> Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow about mass incarceration, uh, Brian Stevenson's work. Uh, you were telling me a book at dinner that Tracy was recommending, and I can't remember the name of it now, but Slavery by Another Name. So the link, right, as you, as you mentioned, sort of the link from Civil War to Reconstruction to Jim Crow through the modern day, um, it's not that things have changed um, the way that we were brought up to think that they have. It's that there has been an erasure of certain parts of that history. And what you're writing and some of the work that the Center for Civil Rights and Restorative Justice is doing is really unearthing those stories from you know, the 1920s through the 1970s. Um, and, and some would say the racial violence of today is really part of that line. And as that um, erasure is dealt with and people realize uh, that, as uh, uh, one writer said, history rhymes, right? It's, we go back to the same themes. Um, I think it's, it's, in a strange way, a cause for hope because we have an explanation of why things are so difficult today. Um, it's not a coincidence, and, and it is something that we have to attend to at every point. I agree. I think that really helps, okay. knowing it's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. Yes. I was planning on doing a revisiting the South tour my, of my own mm. uh, this past year in October, and, uh, you know, because my all my families from the South, 42 first cousins for one county in Tennessee, you know, none of whom I have anything in common with. And I don't really like the South at all. But I want to revisit for, I don't know why, actually, but one of the things I was going to do is go to that museum. <laughs> and I met a black woman, and I happened to mention that. She was on a flight with me, and I happened to mention it to her, and she was horrified that anybody would go to that museum. And I thought, well, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe none of the blacks would ever go, and maybe I'm an idiot for wanting to go. I mean, I really you know, a memorial me... to lynching victims. Yeah, though because the it's Steve, so the, painful. The Stevenson, yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh, yeah. So I was a little. She really uh, made me feel like I wasn't like something wrong with me for wanting to go to something so evil to be revisited. And I, I don't know. I, I ended up not getting to do the tour because a friend of mine was dying of cancer and everything, but. What's your thought on that attitude I, about that museum? I think that's someone who wants to keep her head in the sand. Okay. But the, but the other thing is with blacks, it's something that we've been told you don't talk about. But the reason we've been told that is because we've been terrorized. You don't want to talk about it. You're afraid that it'll happen to you. And when I did my interviews, I interviewed... I did my research from 2000 to 2010. There were still some black folks who were afraid to talk to me. So oh. that could be the other part of it. It's something oh. that... Uh, she was a young woman. Yeah. Well, I wish, you know, I wish we knew how to track her down because, <laughs> because I can relate in a certain sense to what she's saying. There are actually two parts of this um, place to visit. One is called the Legacy Museum, and it's called From... From slavery to mass incarceration, and that's all indoors, and it's very intense. And I actually had to go through it fairly quickly because it was just painful to be in that closed space with lots of extremely effective signage and videos and everything. Um, so that's the indoor place. Up on the top of this hill 
is the open air memorial to the lynching victims. That's where the hanging things are. It's out in the open. It is a beautiful space. The goal was to make it what the EJI called it, a sacred space. And that's what it feels like to me. So she, I can understand the pain behind her statement, but she might really be surprised if she goes. The other thing that I would like to comment in terms of Brian Stevenson's uh, Lynching Memorial, the 800 hanging monuments, there are 800 duplicate on the ground. And Brian Stevenson's idea is that when a community gets together and says we're going to take responsibility for what we've done, it can claim the ones on the ground and take them to their county, the, the, the county. Can. So they're calling it a community yeah. remembrance project. And, you know, we need to pay homage to these forgotten lives. You know, one, one comment on the side that you said, uh, the Whitney Plantation outside of New Orleans uh, is uh, was transformed from a, a homage to the Old mm. South into a history of slavery on the a thing, and it was very well done. But of all the places that you can see in New Orleans about the South, we went to three or four of them, um, there were only African Americans at that one. So more than half of mm. the people who came to that Whitney Plantation were African Americans. They didn't go to the other plantations. Um, oh. And so the whole history of slavery was laid out there, and it was sound very much like oh. this, this thing. Uh, it started about 15 years ago. And I think that that shows, you know, that that's, it, 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 painful as it is, it's still something that, that needs to be said and needs to be done and needs, both sides need to see it, you know, so. I'd like to make one final comment. Yeah. Um, Brian Stevenson says that 97% of the incarcerated never had a trial. Yeah. And that is very significant. And he says the reason they didn't was because they're poor. Mm. So yeah. he, he's got a little statement. I know I can't get it right, but he says it's better to be uh, rich and guilty guilty than to be <laughs> poor and innocent. And innocent. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that's a whole other legal issue, but it's the prosecutor's right and, and to they make a plea deals with everybody so that they can move them right out of the system. It's another element of the mass incarceration issue. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, um, my son is uh, clerking for a federal judge in Montgomery this year. Oh. I don't know if you know Myron Thompson. Very well. Ah. Uh, he's having a, a, an amazing experience. So I've visited him twice. My wife has visited, and we've done. We've gone to the Legacy Museum and the uh, with the, the lynching museum, the, the National Memorial to Peace and Justice. It's one of the most powerful experiences you can have. If, if, if you ever get near it, I would recommend it. Uh, it's a life-changing experience. So I just want to throw that into the mm-hmm. mix. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. And your father is on, his name is on the, is my father's name is on the Lowndes County uh, marker, yeah. cenotaph, or memorial. Uh, there were 16 recognized lynchings in Lowndes County, although I can tell you probably four times 16. Wow. And my father's name is on there. And also, we collected his soil, and now the soil is in the EJI National Memorial Center, which is across the street from the Hanging Monument. Mm. Is the soil from where he was buried or where he was murdered? Where he was murdered. Uh-huh. My husband and I were, when was it, three years ago? Four. Four. Uh, in the South, my husband had read a book by Paul Thoreau, who 
did some traveling through the countryside, the back roads. And for me, it was basically a civil rights journey. I had lived in Selma, Alabama for half a year from the fall of 1962 till the spring Mm. of 1963. So I became very much aware of for blacks only, for Negroes only, for colored only, and whites only. And then... Um, we visited Birmingham. I'm sorry we missed the museums in Montgomery, but we were in Birmingham uh, at the, among other places, 16th Street Baptist Church. And just as we were getting out of our rental car, a bus had stopped in front of that church And out got about 40 young women, all dressed in black, with a pearl necklace and filing into the church. And it turned out they were the choir from Georgia. Bruce, what is it? Spelman University. Spelman Spelman University. And it was so Mm. moving I mean, I moved to tears when I think about it now, Mm -hmm. where they had spirituals, Negro spirituals, for half of it, and other popular, uh, no, not popular. um, Secular. Secular, Mm. thank you. Secular... um, Songs. Mm-hmm. It was so moving. I'll never forget it. And of course, you have the memorial uh, park right in front of that church of the different um, uh, protests that were going on. And the third one was when thousands of, of children were taken into jail or any free place because they were now protesting. It was one of the most mm. moving places I've ever been. And that means something for me because I'm German by background and I have been to Auschwitz and Berlin Memorial for the Jewish victims. Uh, the other place in Birmingham that I found very moving was the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. They have like a millstone outside mm-hmm. with, it's a fountain, mm-hmm. with water running over it. And a certain number of victims, victims that died yeah. in the fight for civil rights they are engraved on there. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I just wanted to go back to what you said, ma'am, in the front seat about the lady on the plane. Um, you know, people have uh, different emotions about different things, and sometimes, you know, everybody's not as strong as everybody else. I, I don't know the lady, but I, I actually went to uh, the slave castles in Ghana with a group of African-American people, 
It was about 60 of us, and there were all kinds of different emotions that people had. I mean, people were screaming and crying, and some people were just standing still. So, you know, it's, it's um, and actually growing up in the South for me, you know, as I said, in the 50s, you know, <laughs> it's not easy to confront these things when you think you've moved on from them. And this lady was young, and maybe she just, who knows what happened in her family. So, mm. you know, so I don't, I don't think you're being judgmental, but I, we have to be careful how we. I was shamed. I mean, she made me feel. No, you shouldn't. No, well, you shouldn't. You should go. And but we all experience mm-hmm. things different ways, and that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes, and it would be so nice if we knew that since everybody experiences things differently, that we can actually get along with each other, even though there's even though there's just a little bit of difference. You know, it's, there's only a few things that really we can't stand about each other, and and those are the serious crimes, right? So, but the, it, it seems like a simple thing, but nobody seems to learn it, right? So, thank you very, very much for sharing your story and for getting the conversation going uh, so deeply for so many people. So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.